Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Manchester United are celebrating a fine win against Tottenham at Old Trafford last night, which they managed yet again without Cristiano Ronaldo, while Liverpool's resurgence continues after another hard-fought 1-0 win at home, this time against West Ham. At Anfield, Chelsea, meanwhile, could only draw nil all with Brentford ahead of their weekend showdown with United. Newcastle are up to sixth after their third win in four, but the top two, Arsenal and Man City, had this midweek off. Elsewhere, the fallout over a hugely controversial Liverpool win against City at the weekend continues as one of the Premier League's most recent rivalries becomes the bitterest. As well as that, Karim Benzema and Alexia Pateas were crowned winners of the Ballon d'Or for this year, with Man City picking up the team of the year gong. Joining Anita Abayomi and me, Peter Staunton, to discuss all of that are Lee Ryder, the chief Newcastle United writer for the Chronicle, and Andy Dunn, the chief sports writer for the Mirror. So let's get right on with it. Um, I want to start with you, Lee, this morning. Uh, I want to talk about Newcastle, uh, their turnaround in form, uh, another hugely impressive win last night, this time against against Everton. You were there. Will you take us through what you saw? Yeah, I mean, it was another great win, another clean sheet, uh, another great goal from Miguel Almiron. The only thing that was missing was probably a few more goals. Uh, that's what the, the Jordy crowd were hoping for. But there was no complaints. Uh, to be fair, I thought Everton didn't put up too much of a fight for me. I, I thought... You know, at the end of the day, they, they looked like they were struggling and it looked like Frank Lampard was um, trying to break Newcastle's rhythm, going into the physical tactics, um, trying to wind a few players up. But ultimately for Newcastle, it's six games unbeaten. Eddie Howe's got the team playing really well and, and, and the city really is jumping at the moment and uh, it's, it's a great place to be at the moment, which you, you couldn't really say that for a, a long time over the last... Uh, well, during the whole of Mike Ashley's period, basically. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll get on to that. So the, the wider sort of how the city is feeling about it all in a moment. But I wanted to hone in, first of all, on, on Almiron for a moment. Now, it's not that long ago that Jack Grealish stood up on stage at the Man City celebrations and pretty much made fun of um, of Almiron. And I think he's outscored him uh, five to one or something uh, since then. And, and not only that, he's starting games, starting regularly. Uh, Grealish can't, get, can't even get in the team. Um, is that something you think that has fired Almiron on uh, over the course of this season? Or is it just a case that he's finally found the manager after all these years at Newcastle? He's finally found the manager to to unlock that piece of form that he maybe was always been capable of delivering. Um, yeah, I mean, probably two two sort of ways of looking at it. I mean, for a start, the the Jack Grealish stuff, yes, he'd be well aware of what was said. Um, I think players are constantly on the phones these days there's no way that he doesn't know what, what was said about him in the, in the summer. And it probably did push him on a little bit. Um, I know in the past, you know, Almiron, if he hasn't had good merit marks in the Chronicle, um, we've, we've been getting little messages back um, from the camp and things like that. But in terms of the way he's playing, Eddie Howe played a 4-3-3 formation on the front foot. It is very much like, without getting carried away, it is very much the, the way Kevin Keegan set up um, looking for goals. Eddie Howard made it last night. Every time he goes forward, he, he wants to try and, you know, add to the score sheet. And Almiron's reveling in that. Um, in the past, Newcastle have played with a five-man defence. Uh, Steve Bruce trying to just, just eke out points in the Premier League. Um, Rafa Benitez, the man who signed Almiron, 
Uh, he initially had a plan for him to, to play in a more advanced team, a more attacking team, but because they were under so much pressure, again, had to sort of park the bus a little bit. And Almiron was just sort of, you know, feeding off scraps. Now he's he's getting on the Newcastle, are getting him on the ball all the time, and um, it's paying dividends. You know, he's top scorer of five goals, and he's really looking like the player that Newcastle signed probably three years ago. Um, the the guy who got all those goals over in America, everyone was doubting whether he could do it on the Premier League stage. Now uh, he's going out there and doing it. Do you know what? I've not spoken to a Newcastle. Someone in the know of Newcastle in a very long time, right? The last time I did, it was all Steve Bruce out, everything's so toxic, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, I don't know if it's ever going to get better for Newcastle, but it's gotten better for Almiron. I'm guessing it's getting better around the city as a whole. You were saying that, you know, everyone's buzzing, the atmosphere's different now. Can you kind of like just enlighten me as to how the atmosphere is different and what was it like before and why you think that's kind of changed now? Is it because of the attacking football? What is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a mixture of, um, you know, the, the takeover obviously going through, Mike Ashley um, leaving the town and basically Eddie Howe coming in and, and saying from the off that he wanted to play entertaining football and that, that's exactly what he's done. The city, as, as everyone knows here, the, the city thrives on on Newcastle United doing well. It's it's great for the economy in the area. You know, this morning it's chucking down with rain. I've already been outside. I've bumped into a couple of people and everyone's buzzing, even though it's horrible weather here. So that shows you what um, a successful football team can do. But I think really um, the fans are going around basically saying they've got their club back. That's the way they look at it. I mean, yes, there are other wider issues which I'm sure we, we could discuss, but on the field, the way the team's playing and the way Eddie Howe's you know, got the players uh, motivated, it's really capturing the imagination of the supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, I might bring you in here just to uh, get your perspective on on Newcastle, first of all, uh, since Lee's with us today. Um, you know, Everton were there last night. Uh, I'm sure you were hoping the results would go another way. Um mm-hmm. How have you assessed, I suppose, uh, Newcastle's resurgence over not even over since the beginning of the season because you know they were drawn sort of every week at that stage, but you know you see the likes of Gimaresh playing himself into form. Kieran Trippier is probably one of the best uh, right backs in the league, I would say at this stage. Nick Pope, you know, I would say should be the England goalkeeper. That's only me. Um, you know, maybe a, a modicum of jealousy looking at uh, what's happening at Newcastle from uh, from an Everton perspective. Well, I wouldn't say a modicum of jealousy. You know, maybe listen, Everton, um, since Machine took over, invested a lot of money. That money will will dry up, um, or probably has dried up now until yeah. Machine sells. So there's that element to it. So envious of the fact that Newcastle do have, you know, contrary to what Eddie Howe said in response to Jurgen Klopp, they do have, um, you know, vast resources to spend, and they have done that over the past um, calendar year. Um, but I'm quite. I'm, I'm. I'm relatively impressed. I watched them on. I was at the game on Sunday um, at Old Trafford, and I, I was slightly disappointed actually in the second half. I thought they had a bit of a go first half, and as Lee says, you know, played some good at counter attacking football mainly. Almiron in particular at Old Trafford, I thought looked extremely lively, extremely creative. I was disappointed that they essentially sat sat pretty much back in that second half against United. Um, but, you know, they were sound and maybe last night's performance and result for Manchester United put that goalless draw into perspective, you know, and considering that Liverpool have been beaten at Old Trafford, Arsenal have been beaten at Old Trafford, now Spurs have been beaten at Old Trafford, 
you know, that sort of result that Newcastle got, you know, it was probably a good result, albeit that someone like Brighton went and, and won at Old Trafford. So I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed with the way they're organised. Clearly, if you're keeping clean sheets, then that gives you a head start in trying to win games. So, yeah, extremely, you know, ex- and listen, I've always been an Eddie Howe fan. It's, it's strange that you mention um, Everton there, obviously in relation to last night's game. But when, um, um, when ahead of, before Rafa Benitez got the job, scandalously at, at Everton, um, my, I, I was touting very how I thought how should have been the main contender for the Everton job before Benitez got the job. I like the way he goes about his business. Um, I like uh, the way he coaches. Um, I like the fact that I thought he would have done at Everton what he's done at Newcastle, which is this whole idea. I know it's a bit vague of, of buying into a project, basically, it being the pinnacle of his career to a certain extent. You know, he, he's he's looking long term into it, he's not. He's not there to as a stepping stone for anything else. And as Lee says, you know, all the stuff that goes around it, we, we could go into that. But for him, it's it, it, it feels like a long-term job. It feels like he's not going to have his head turned by anything, including England. And I think that's good, you know. And, and there the feels a bit of structure about the place. There feels a bit of longevity about the place. So I think I think it's, you know, there's nothing not to like. I would like to see... I know Lee says, I mean, I haven't seen enough of them to, to, to I saw them obviously in a, in a brilliant game against Manchester City um, when unusually, you know, they, well, I mean, anyone could be like that against City. They look like conceding a lot, but they look like scoring every time they went forward. You know, and I think that, that he's got a combination there as, 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 you know, that is, that looks pretty sound. And don't forget, he can go back in, maybe not in January, maybe in January if they're, if they're still competing, maybe in the top six or seven. But certainly next summer, he can build on that. And there's no reason why they won't keep building on that. There's no reason why, you know, under this ownership, whatever you make of the ownership, and with this manager and with this group of players to be added to, that there's going to be that thing that Newcastle haven't had for a long time and that stability in the top half of the table. I just don't see how that can not happen. He's pretty much a, a sound manager with a sound yeah. system, basically. He's he's a pretty good manager. And again, we can't not talk about the off-pitch antics, um, him responding to kind of Jurgen Klopp's um, comments from over the weekend. And Jurgen Klopp, Lee, I'll bring you in here. Jurgen Klopp kind of suggesting that there are three teams in the Premier League that can literally buy or do whatever they want to do. And... Um, Eddie Howe came out and he was he, he kind of said, you know, just be a little bit careful. We haven't spent that much money. But when Thomas Tuchel would come out and defend Chelsea, I would say, OK, this is a noble man, as in I love him on the pitch and off the pitch. And Lee, like what, what's the feeling around Newcastle now, especially because he's not he's not stayed quiet. He's kind of clapped back and he said, you know, we haven't even spent that much money. Yeah, um, I, I'll give I'll try to give as balanced a view as possible on, on this one. Um, yeah. Firstly, in terms of what Jurgen Klopp said, um, yeah, Newcastle this year, they've spent £200 million on players. Uh, there's, there's no getting away from that. Um, for me, previous windows, Mike Ashley neglected the club and didn't give them what they needed. So I think they had to, they had to spend money in January this year or they were going to go down. So they were basically playing catch-up um, after a lot of windows where they hadn't invested in the club properly. So there's no getting away from that. The other thing I would say, though, is they're not really throwing money around like confetti uh, uh, as as 
Jurgen Klopp was suggesting in terms of wages. Um, you look at some of the wage structure at Liverpool, Man City, Chelsea, Newcastle are absolutely nowhere near that. Um, you know, you look at someone like Haaland's wages, which are absolutely astronomical. I think Newcastle's top earner is only probably on only on £120,000 a week. Uh, all right for some. But um, basically, I think when you compare that with the top six, I would say Newcastle's wage budget is going to be really low down the pecking order. In terms of the money as well, one other thing I'll say is that um, I think they had to spend money in January, but um, a signing like Chris Wood, they paid £25 million for. For me, I think that was overpriced because he basically had a clause and they, they, they basically got backed into a corner said, if you want him, you're going to have to break the clause. So they've, they've over, overspent on, on someone like Chris Wood, in my opinion. Uh, and even um, Alexander Isaac, I talked to people in Spain and they say £63 million was quite extortionate for him. Um, one one source that I spoke to at a top club said that, you know, we, we only value him at probably half the price. So so there's a bit of, ba- I hope I put a bit of balance in there. Um, it's, it's not just Newcastle totally throwing money at the problem because if they were, they'd, they'd probably be signing uh, bigger earners. Eddie Howe wanted to keep the balance uh, and the morale in the camp a little bit level as Newcastle try to grow in the Premier League. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's definitely um, some arguments for and against what, what Klopp said. Lee, as well, if I can just pick up with you for a second here. Um, I, th- I see maybe... Newcastle and another club like Aston Villa, for example, maybe sort of in the in the same in the same bracket in terms of this is the money we need to spend, this is where we need to get to, this is where we would like to be someday. But I look at the signings that maybe Villa have made, you know, more misses than hits, I would say, since they've come back into the Premier League. Whereas I think Newcastle have probably been, you know, better at signing players. Uh, I want to talk about some of the guys I mentioned at the top of the show, which was Nick Pope, uh, Karen Trippier. And uh, Bruno Gimares. Uh, obviously, I mean, it's unlucky that Isak is now out until, the, I think, the new year. Uh, maybe that's right. But can you give us uh, some perspective on those signings in particular, those three signings in particular? The two England players who probably, well, should be, I think Pope should be starting at the World Cup, but Trippier certainly will be starting at the World Cup. And Gimares, who's holding it down in Brazil's uh, centre midfield. Um, you know, they've, they've really, I think, hit pay dirt with, uh, with, those, with those signings in particular. I mean, yeah, I mean... Go back to to what I said. I think with players like Wood and Isaac, maybe they've they have spent the money. They have been pushed to spend it, but they've had to to, to get those players. Have had to activate the clauses. The other players that you mentioned, I mean, we're not talking silly money really. Um, for Trippier, I think it was like about twelve million pound for Trippier, and he's come in and he's just changed the whole club around. He's come in as captain. Um, he's an eight out of ten minimum every week. He, he brings assists, he brings goals. He, he's just an arena, probably Newcastle United's best ever right back in the Premier League already. Um, if, you, if you look down the years at uh, some of the players we've had. So he was a top signing and he didn't cost the earth and he hasn't come in on, on really crazy wages either. Um, Gimerez, I think Newcastle have done really well to sneak in there and get him. Well, just under 40 million. You know, they got in there under the noses of Juventus. Arsenal, teams like that. And he's now the main man and he's got no release clause. So Newcastle can try to to build a team around him. Um, Nick Pope, £10 million, I think, from Burnley. 
unbelievable value, really, for an England international. Newcastle had Dubravka before that, and everyone raised eyebrows a little bit about Dubravka going. It's like, whoa, he's been our best player for, like, the last two or three years. Brave call by Eddie Howe, but he's proved to be the right call because Nick Pope has really blended in with the, the way the team plays. Great, great with his feet, keeps clean sheets as well. And um, he's come in as a really established, experienced player in the dressing room and another big voice in there. So I, I think they've done there's some questionable deals in terms of how much they've had to pay, but other business has been really good. Mm-hmm. Um, Andy, I, I want to come back to you here. Um, mm. Obviously, you know, Eddie Howe was giving us a response to, to what Jurgen Klopp said last week. And, um, you know, those comments and City's subsequent reaction has, has kicked up a you know, a real mess, a real hornet's nest. Um, I wanted to ask you more broadly about the, the Man City-Liverpool rivalry, how it's developed over the last four or five years. You know, we've had buses being attacked. We've had, obviously, the graffiti and the chanting in the grounds. Um, you know, we've had the Man City players chanting on the airplanes. Um, you know, it's been an ugly rivalry, uh, all things told. Um, how have you, you know, sort of watched the development of this, um, you know, sort of bitter rivalry grow over the last few years? Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's... It's strange where the rivalry's gone. If you think they, to start with, they probably had, you know, a mutual, a mutual enemy in Manchester United, didn't they? You know, the rivalry between Liverpool and Man United, Man City and Man United was fierce, and now these two, you know, the two best teams, obviously of our generation, the two best teams of the last six or seven years. Um, and you know what I think is the most disappointing thing about it, Peter? The most disappointing thing is that this is going right to the top. You know, and this isn't just Pep and Jurgen. And listen, I know, I know from from private experience socially, um, Pep and Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp, as you would imagine, have the utmost respect for each other. I've seen them in situations, in social situations, away from the pressure um, of day to day management, and they have the utmost respect for each other. I think that goes without saying. What's disappointing from, I think, a fan's point of view, should be the fact that this is. This seems to emanate from 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 the very top of, of of each club. You know, this is quite clearly as the fallout from Klopp's comments um, have shown, and the fallout from last Sunday's game, which let's face it was you know a really good game of football. It wasn't as great, I don't think, as some people suggested, but it was a good game of football. And in the end, the, the fallout from it has just been so toxic; it, it's almost left it has left a bad taste in the mouth, and that comes from from the from the very top. That is clearly. A feeling at City that, um, the, the, you know, that the Liverpool don't maybe give um, what's happened there enough respect. Klopp's comments clearly were broader than the Manchester City. They were about the idea of nation states owning football clubs. You know, whatever you think about Newcastle, it's clearly Saudi funded, where, you know, it's Abu Dhabi funded for uh, Manchester City and Qatar funded for PSG. And clearly the, the, the Klopp's comments specifically weren't, well, how much are Newcastle spending, how much are City spending? It was the idea that actually if they want to, they can. You know, so in Manchester City's case, if they buy a £50 million fullback, who's not quite up to it, they buy another £50 million fullback. They have the capacity to do that and they have the capacity to pay big wages. I don't think he was saying they necessarily are doing it right now, but his his point was a broad one. His point was a broad one is that is, 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 is the clubs with... N- um, nation state backing have have a, have more resources than than, some, than, than than private owners. And by the way, that's not to say private owners are any better. You know, ask Manchester United fans. You know what they think of their owners. Um, it just happens that Liverpool 
so far are okay with their owners. So I think the answer to your question, the disappointing thing is, is that this has been started at the head of things, you know, and, and, and it's gone from the head downwards. Again, what I would also say, and it's worth bearing in mind, is that the players, the players have unbelievable respect for each other. These players are mates. You know, these players are mates off the pitch. These players, you know, um, sort of live within a 30-mile radius of each other. You know, Kevin De Bruyne is a big pal of Virgil van Dijk's. You know, you have the Brazilian connections at both clubs. You know, these are, and, and there's never really, there's the odd instance on a pitch, but not really that, that much. So it is actually the players who, who are probably setting the example that others should follow. But I do think that if the narrative is that these are two clubs that don't like each other at the very top, I do think that has an impact on, on the fans. I'm not saying it should excuse any of the fans' over-the-top behaviour, but it does have an impact, yeah. It'd be nice. I do think we will see a move now, maybe... Um, for somehow for it to be sort of cooled a little bit because in the end they're just two fantastic teams aren't they you know as I say whose players and managers do have immense respect for each other do you know I was literally just about to say not condoning anything the Stanford fans have done I think the fans went way too over the top of it but I look back at rivalries like when Chelsea when Jose Mourinho came to um, mm. the Premier League and you know there was a little rivalry with Chelsea and Liverpool there um, Man United and Liverpool I grew up on that rivalry as well even Man United and Arsenal it's, it's such a London thing but Man United and Arsenal London fans they absolutely hate each other's guts right and I just feel like that's what makes the game a little bit more interesting, you know? When the two managers are going at it, like when Rafa Benitez and Jose Mourinho go at it, when we saw the tussle between Mourinho and Arsene Wenger as well, those are the kind of things that me as a fan, as a football fan, I live for. So seeing kind of Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola, of course they have that immense respect for each other. I feel like there's no, there's no pair of managers who don't have that respect for each other, right? But... Mm. I feel like it's good for the game. Obviously, not condoning what the fans have done, but this rivalry between Liverpool and Man City, I don't know, maybe it's just the Gen yeah. Z in me. I, I love it. it. It makes my blood boil. I watch the match and I'm thinking, don't hug each other. Why are you hugging each other? And I'm sure like people like Roy Keane will probably back me on this. I don't want to mm. see Kevin De Bruyne and, and Virgil van Dijk hugging each other after matches and trying to calm down situations. Bernardo Silva, when he was giving it the big one, I wanted him to carry on giving it the big one the entire match, but they were all hugging each other. And it, it's just... I don't know. Maybe I'm over the top. Tell me if I'm over the top. I just think this is what makes the game what it is. I think the broader point, just uh, on that list, and some people don't like that. I think it's all right. Actually, I think I think you know that they they certainly need leave nothing out there when they're playing against each other. And as I say, they happen to be. It's only natural they they, they do happen. You know, they're very close to each other off the field, actually physically. You know, the kids go to the same schools. I mean, literally. You know, I mean, it's it's like. Most Liverpool players live in the same area as Manchester City players. And someone, you know, um, you know, I remember, obviously he's not there anymore, but, you know, Fernandino at Man City would be the sort of, the leader of the Brazilian contingent living in South Cheshire, you know, along with Fabinho and, and Alisson and, you know, Cancelo, the Portuguese guys. These, these are all, with Thiago, they're all mates. You know, they're all mates. They, 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 they can't, like, and, and, and they're, you know, fierce on the pitch. Just going back to what I would say, the, the issue with Manchester City is that what they think is happening is that somehow Liverpool and Jurgen Klopp are portraying Manchester City as the sort of 
the um, the sort of beasts of the, of the Premier League, the sort of the bad guys in, in in these are the super villains with super amounts of money, and we're the underdogs, you know. And any victory for us against City, like we had on Sunday, is a victory for you know for football for whatever. I think that's what City are really really annoyed about this idea that that, that you know they are some sort of you know uh, like a sort of you know a global sort of sort of behemoth that, that, that's, that sort of can't be stopped and basically has got so much money that you can't and any victory against them is a victory for the sort of, you know, the David against the Goliath, which, of course, as City will point out, is, is slightly ridiculous in, the, in that Liverpool, you know, have paid 80 million for Nunes, 80 million for Van Dijk, 80 million for Allison, whatever. But I do think that's where City's anger comes from. What I would say about the rivalry on the field, at least, is that I think that City are a better team because of Liverpool and probably Liverpool a better team because of City. I think that over the course of the last four or five years, I think they've probably taken each other to new heights. Great battles in the Champions League, uh, great battles in the Premier League and all the Cups as well. So, you know, whether you like it or not, over the course of the last half decade or so, this has been the story of English football. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, go on, Anita. I was going to say, I'm 100% with that. You know, when you've got your little rival next to you and then you're trying to be better than a rival, then your the rival's trying to be better than you. I love oh, yeah. it. It's I Nadal, Federer, Djokovic all over again, isn't it? You literally. You best out of one another. Literally. And if I wasn't so, you know, obsessed with my football club, there's a lot of Gen Z supporting Man C, and I understand why. A lot of them supporting Liverpool too. And I'm just like, my little cousins, eight and nine years old, they are Man City fans, and I'm just like, you don't know nothing, do you? But when they're my age, Man City's going to have heaps of history, and I'm going to be jealous of it. But anyway, yeah. I digress. Let's move back on to the actual yep. game that happened, Liverpool-Man City, right? And Liverpool, they've kind of been changing up their tactics. They've been changing up formations. Against Man City was a 4-2-3-1, if I'm correct. And against um, West Ham last night, it was a 4-4-2. Um, Lee, I, th- I think I'll bring you back in here. I feel like we've just been going on about this rivalry and you've just been sat back on your chair like, oh, this is interesting. But <laughs> let me bring you in here. Um, how have you noticed um, Liverpool's kind of difference in the way they play, especially against Manchester City, where I thought they were kind of a little bit more reserved and a little bit more patient, whereas in the past it's more been, you know, like head-to-head. Yeah, I mean, for me, from a Newcastle point of view, we've 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 played both teams now, and obviously we got a point against Man City in that three-three draw, which Andy mentioned uh, before, and then uh, we lost in the, I think it was a ninety-eighth minute um, at Anfield. I, I probably I'm probably looking at Liverpool. I'm I'm a bit taken aback by they haven't had the greatest start. Um, they're playing catch up, and I'm sure they will. Come again, and but I've never seen Jurgen Klopp so sort of rattled. It it seems he he, he seems to be the whole world. He, he's against the whole world at the moment, and uh, you know that's that's not the the reason why football fans love Jurgen Klopp. So I'm a I'm a bit shocked by the way Liverpool have played, but by the same token, they're not they're not out of anything. They, they beat Rangers seven one in the Champions League the other day. They showed when they want to do it, when they need to do it, they can they can step it up. And um, look, the, the 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 history is just unbelievable at Liverpool. I'd be amazed if they don't uh, emerge with with at least a couple of trophies again this season. I mean, if last season was a bad season, winning just the domestic cups, then as a Newcastle fan, we'd love one of them bad seasons at some point, winning a couple of cups. It would be fantastic. So 
yeah, I, I think it's just never write Liverpool off. You've had an up close uh, view of of both of these teams, Lee, so far this season. Um, um, it might be the mo- not the most uh, scientific method of uh, uh, ascertaining who's the better side or not. But who do you think's the better team? I haven't seen them in both of them in action against Newcastle. Um, which which of these teams do you think is um, has got the most promise? I suppose Champions League, Premier League going forward. I think. Um... Probably Man City edge it for me. Um, sorry, Liverpool fans, but I, I think Man City are just just that little bit ahead. And and I think obviously, Haaland, it's just like a machine, isn't he? The goals he gets, he's he's probably gonna smash every record out there, out the park, basically in the next uh, in the years to come. Maybe even be Alan Shearer at some stage. You know, that's 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 the potential he's got in front of him. So. I think Man City just edge it. They've got the power to, to to go out and spend again as well. So for me, I think you know Man City will win the title again. Can they win the Champions League? That seems to be the thing that 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 evades them, isn't it? Um, it's the one thing that Pep Guardiola desperately wants, but I I, I don't know. It's, there's just some there's a nervousness about them when it comes to Champions League, and uh, they just can't quite get it over the line. So both great teams, but for me, Man City. You just edge it that little bit. Actually, on the on the point of the Champions League, it feels a little bit like when they get to those the last knockings of the Champions League, it's a bit like when Spurs play against the big teams. This is where I want to bring Andy back in because he was there last night. Mm-hmm. And Conte in his uh, in his post match analysis last night said, "When we need to perform in these games, we flop. We 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 can't do it. A little bit like what happens with City in the latter stages of the Champions League. Mm-hmm. You know, they've had those performances against Leon, that performance against Chelsea in the final, which you know bore no fruit for them. Um, but just to move it on a little bit and and, and get into the game from last night, Spurs against mm-hmm. against Man United. Me personally, I was really disappointed with Spurs last night. I thought they, you know, and I was disappointed a couple of weeks ago against Arsenal too. They seem to be t- two completely different teams when 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 they're up against a top six rival and when they're not. Yeah, I mean, what I would say, I mean, first of all, is that that's I've seen an awful lot of Manchester United. Um, well, during my life actually, but it's certainly in recent years, and that was as. That was as good as I've seen Manchester United play for a long, long time. Certainly the best of the season. Best, you know, for I mean, for some considerable time. They really were superb. So I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily sort of have a go at Spurs for that. They weren't particularly good. Um, and you know what was worrying? I you mentioned here what, what Conte said. Well, obviously, I'm sure we'll get around to talking about it. After the game, bear in mind it was quite a late kickoff, 8-15. After the game, of course, we're all sat there. Well, actually, sort of like for the last five minutes of the game, we're all sat there, you know, finalising our reports. And then next minute, out the corner of your eye, you see Cristiano Ronaldo walking out of the stadium. Um, and that's what you really need, like, with about four minutes left to um, to file reports. And um, suddenly that becomes the news. So as you can imagine, that caused a little bit of chaos. And then, obviously, Ten Hag was a while getting into his presser. Um and then eventually, eventually, you know, Conte came in. It was a bit of an afterthought. And it was like, I can tell you now, it was probably, I know because I was looking at the deadlines, it must have been 11.15 when Conte finally um, came to see us. And what he said, as in a way, because of the Ronaldo um, fuss, has gone under the radar. You know, he essentially said what you just said. He, he said, listen, uh, when we play higher level teams, we're just not up to it. We're just not good enough against higher level teams. 
And, you know, I was driving home and I thought, you know, that's quite a startling thing to say, really. What if you're Harry Kane? You know, I, and, and you're thinking, hang on a minute. Like, you know, I mean, I, I, I want to win stuff. And essentially what you're saying is, is we can't because we can't play against the big teams. You know, we're outplayed by this season by Chelsea, by Arsenal, by, by Manchester United. And I think that's a fairly, I mean, incredibly damning thing to say. In terms of how they played last night, you know, I I thought they, strange enough, I just thought they were too... I think I think if they sort of very quickly adapted and gone a bit more direct with the way United were playing, instead they were trying to play out from the back. They were playing fairly cautiously. They were getting caught in possession. I just don't think Conte, considering he's such a celebrated coach, read the game last night at all. I, re- I really don't. You know, I just don't think. I thought they should have basically just gone a little bit, a bit longer, um, just to try and relieve some of some of the pressure. Instead. They were just, I mean, I mean, just entirely unconvincing all over the pitch, to be perfectly honest with you. So, and that's a huge worry. That's, you know, I just, it's the wrong message from Conte. He said, like, you know, he said, well, the table looks good, but, you know, he sort of laughed when when he mentioned the sort of phrase title contenders. You know, he was talking, I mean, so negatively. And I just think that has an impact on the players. I mean, it was, again, the caveat is that, that that's as good as United have played for a long time. But... It's clearly a worry that, 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 that Conte, fair play to him, is expressing himself that actually when they're playing the top six sides, um, they're probably just not quite good enough. Um, bear in mind, also, also, what I would just quickly say is that obviously um, without Kulaseski and without um, Richarlison, yeah. you know, they, it, it, they had a couple of problems there injury-wise. Yeah, I was thinking they were pretty limited going forward, especially yeah. about those two. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. The only, I only caught glimpses of the match, but you could just instantly see that Harry Kane was having to do a lot more up front um, yeah. and it was a bit more difficult for Spurs to kind of progress it's, the ball as well. It, football's funny, isn't it? Because also for all United, I mean, United absolutely battered them. You know, 19, 19 yeah. attempts on goal. Lloris played well in that sort of odd way that Lloris does play well, making sort of unorthodox saves and sort of making making sort of easy saves look good and making hard saves look easy. You know, that's his speciality, isn't it really? And and but for all that, so bear in mind for all that, as I say about football being a game of margins, United only broke through through a very, very lucky goal. You know, I mean a really lucky goal. And there was even an element of fortune about the second goal that came back to Fernandez. You know, so I guess you could yeah. cling on to that. But overall, just not good enough spares. Look the thing is, Man United, like you said, they did play good football and the best football that we've probably seen in quite a while. Mm. But again, like we said, the main story is Cristiano Ronaldo walking down the tunnel, Eric Ten Hag clearly expressing, you know, his frustrations as well. And Andy, I, I, I need to kind of understand, what do you do with a player who walks out before full-time, goes straight down the tunnel, and it, it just brings a bit of bad morale to the entire club? So what, what do you do in that situation as Ter- um, Eric Ten Hag? He did the right thing last night. He did the right thing by saying, listen, you know, he didn't try and... He didn't try and... And, and I can think of managers in the past who might have tried to sort of um, camouflage the situation and turn around and say, okay, well, a player asked me, you know, I wasn't going to... Because bear in mind, let's bear in mind, Manchester United had made... There was there was about a minute, minute and a half left of, of normal time, three or four minutes to add on, which, you know, Ronaldo would have known. United had, had made three substitutes, so there were still two substitutes left to be made if they wanted to. Players could still get injured. Um, Tenor could have said, 
he could have told the white lie and said, well, listen, like, you know, I, I gave him permission to go down there, but none of the sort. He, he, he dealt with it. Last night, I thought Ten Hag said, right, listen, I'll deal with that tomorrow. And when someone says, I'll deal with that, you know, it's like, it's like parents saying to the kids, right, I'll deal with you in a minute. You know you're going to get punishments. So I like the way that, that actually Ten Hag did it. I'll deal with that tomorrow. That, 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 that's that's good, you know, and, and we will find out how he deals with it. I suspect the way he'll deal with it is is, is tell Ronaldo that, that that's not acceptable. But more importantly, how he'll deal with it is that he won't have him in, in, in the team for Saturday's game at Chelsea and he won't have him in the team for games ahead of that. Because also, pointedly, what I thought Ten Hag said really well last night was that while saying he he didn't want that to, to obviously, he just wanted to focus on 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 as he called it, the best performance under him. He also said what I saw out there was 11 players attacking and 11 players defending. And that was clearly a pointed reference to the absence of Ronaldo. Clearly, that was him saying, listen, if Ronaldo plays, we have 10 players defending and 11 players attacking. And that's clearly what he was saying. Um, I'm not sure how the goalkeeper fits in that. But... um, and I think he's handled this perfectly. People are saying, people are turning around and saying, well, like, you know, Ronaldo, it overshadowed the game. It distracted from a great Manchester United performance. It was an insult to his manager, gave his manager the service. I think none of that is true. And I, I thought I thought it was one of Ten Hag's finest moments. You know, it, it, the, the, the sight of Ronaldo walking down that tunnel and the sight of Old Trafford absolutely rocking, every player celebrating, and them doing it, that was the moment when I thought, well, if there was ever a contest between Eric Ten Hag and Cristiano Ronaldo, that's the knockout blow. That's it there. Ten Hag is now, we know, the cut of his gym now. And he will, I mean, bear in mind on, on Sunday, you know, he took Ronaldo off against Newcastle, which I thought was a strange decision because Newcastle were a bit defensive then and bring Rashford on by all means, but maybe take Fred or Casemiro off. Um Oh, was it Fred and Casemiro? Yeah, no, was, I, I can't remember which. Yeah, there was two holding midfielders. I think it was Fred and Casemiro. Um, but how did he respond to it then? Ten Hag, you know, having to defend himself about taking Ronaldo off in a strop. He just doesn't play him the next game. He doesn't play him the next game. And not only that, what probably tipped Ronaldo over the edge is when with five or ten minutes to go, he can make a, an attack and substitution. He brings a langer on ahead of Ronaldo. And, that's, and I just think that Ten Hag has basically, now, if we had any doubt about who's the boss, and of course we shouldn't have had any doubts, then last night showed um, it was Eric Ten Hag. Uh, I have to say, I doubted Ronaldo was going to play last night when I saw him sitting on the bench with that dangly crucifix earring that probably cost about as much as a house. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what, what makes that, Peter? Just, just, just quickly, final Ronaldo. What, what, what makes me, is when you're there at Old Trafford, it's like on, on Sunday, it was before the game, Sir Alex Ferguson came onto the pitch and presented Ronaldo with a, a momentous it was just, I think it was just Silver Stafford to mark his 700 club goals, fantastic achievements. And then before the game yesterday, there's this new thing, isn't it, of of, of Ronaldo going over to sort of hug pundits or, or whatever, whether it be, I think it was Thierry Henry last night, I know it was Rio and whatever. And he's the centre of attention, this idea that Ronaldo is, you know, and, and I just think Ten Hag, you know, a completely different character is looking at that. And he's almost thought, you know, anyone who thinks this guy is as big as this club, and, and this and don't forget, without him, they were they were exceptional without him, and and they are quicker without him. Um, listen, this is not to say to do, to do, to denigrate any of his achievements, but at the moment they are just quicker, sharper, press better, track back better, more incisive, you know, and and and, and they are a better team without him at the moment. That's fact, and, but that's not unusually thirty seven. 
Um, Lee, uh, to bring you in here, uh, Man United last week, uh, Tottenham uh, this weekend, uh, Newcastle have to well face United and then we'll face Tottenham this weekend. Nothing you saw last night from from a Spurs perspective that would that would make Newcastle worried, or uh, is it a case that they're not going to fancy the trip down, or you know how are things shaping up for this weekend? I mean, yeah, just, just a quick one on Ronaldo as well. There, just off the back, I'm fascinated with listening to what you're saying. One quick one is that had Ronaldo stayed on the pitch against Newcastle, then the head of that bell for Rashford, bell for Ronaldo, yeah. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Ronaldo will be punishing Newcastle. So Ten Hag, he's got to get that balance exactly right. It must be very difficult because, you know, he, he is the main man. And I'm sure Alex Ferguson will have a probably have a view on how to deal with him, you know, looking back to how he dealt with Cantona back in the day, you know? Mm, um, yeah. But, but yeah, but Spurs, um, again, fascinated listening to what you're saying there because it gives me an idea of, of what we're facing. That was it. It's a decent time for Newcastle to go down there and, and have a crack at Spurs, um, especially after after last night. I think Newcastle will go down there and see it almost as a free hit. They've got a point at Man U. They've got the three points that were expected of them against Everton. If they lost against Spurs, it wouldn't be the end of the world. But I don't think they're in the mood to go down there and, and fold. I think that the, the, it feels like they're in the mood to go down there and get under the skin a little bit and try and wind them up a bit, um, especially like Harry Kane. So... I'm I'm looking forward to to Sunday. I think uh, it's an opportunity to to really sign off this three game uh, week with with a good haul of points and hopefully um, from Newcastle's point of view, you know we're going into this World Cup break and, and we're still still in and around those European places and we can and we can dream a little bit. Yeah, the, obviously Newcastle hard to beat at the start of the season, but they weren't able to rack up those wins. It was they seemed to be drawn every week, as I said. But now that they're able to convert those those potential draws into wins. You know, one we'll look at the table, I mean, 10 days ago, Newcastle, you know, they're not appearing. And now, and now, you know, you type their name into Google and it's boom, they're right there, top six. It looks like they could be qualifying for Europe. Yeah, look, it's, we we aren't used to being involved in high profile spots with um, Man United and um, Jurgen Klopp. We just haven't been making those type of headlines in recent years before the takeover. You know, Newcastle were just, Literally, it was all about the fans fighting against Mike Ashley. And um, I think now that everyone's sort of reading off the same page, you know, they, they can possibly do something special this season. You, you don't get carried away because you know it's a long season. I'm a bit sort of wary of the World Cup break that for some teams, it'll come at a great mm-hmm. time for them because they can reset, you know, and, and think about things again. For Newcastle, I just fear that we could finish on a bit of a high before the World Cup and then it comes at a bad time for us. We've got a lot of players going to the World Cup. What condition do they come back in? And how do they, you know, get the momentum going again after the World Cup break? I'm a little bit concerned about that, but look, if, if they keep doing what they're doing and Eddie Howe keeps motivating the players the way he's doing it, then, you know, they're in with a chance of Europe. But ask the fans at the start of the season, they would have taken top 10. So I, I, I don't see too many negatives at the moment. Mm, yeah, complete sea change up there at Newcastle. Mm. Um, Anita, uh, I want to just uh, pick your brains a little bit here. Um, what are the, the, the bigger teams that we have to mention so far is Chelsea, uh, your beloved Chelsea. Um, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you. So I, I want to go through these ones uh, fairly quickly. First of all, uh, Brentford away last night. 
uh, no goals, a draw. Um, your reaction to that one first off? First, um, I suppose, sticky, sticky, uh, sticky result for Potter? Yeah, I'm not surprised. The lineup he put out, I was just, okay, Kai Havertz, Mason Mount. You expect Mason Mount to put in a 10 out of 10 performance everywhere he goes, anywhere, anyway. But unfortunately, it just wasn't there for him. Um, <clears throat> Armando Breuer getting his, de- um, his debut start for the team as well. That was pretty nice. Um, there are positives to take away. Breuer, I think he's a phenomenal player, right? And a lot of people said it when he was at Southampton last season. They said there's a real good, talented player in this guy and all he needs is more game time. And I respect Potter for leaving Aubameyang and going on the bench and bringing in Breuer and saying, okay, this is your debut start. You're going to make your start today. Show me what you've got. And although he didn't score, you can kind of see that there is a player in there who is capable of making dangerous runs, dangerous tackles. He's ambitious. He's hungry. And that's what we like to see in a striker, you know? So, yeah, I'm not I'm not disappointed. I'm not surprised. Brentford are a very good side. They and they are, they are a very high-pressing side as well. If you can't keep up with their press, you will get punished. And we were called in to defend quite a lot. Um, Kukurela, Kulabali, they they had quite the game um, defended in front of Kepa. And Kepa, my man of the match, surprisingly, my favourite player in the Chelsea shirt, surprisingly at the moment, he had a he had a great match too. So again, not surprised, not disappointed, kind of expected from Chelsea. Um, Chelsea, I think next summer are going to face in midfield what they face in defence this summer. Uh, injuries, people out of contract, uh, who will be sold, all of that kind of stuff. So two players I want to speak about here in particular. Uh, N'Golo Kante is going to miss the World Cup. Surely, um, we have to say now that Kante's best days are behind him. We're never going to see that player again that won the Champions League, that won the World Cup, are we? It's so <laughs> it's so disheartening to say It's that. hard. It's hard. Yeah, it's so hard. It feels like yeah. a breakup, you know. You don't yeah. want to say it, but it, it's coming to the end of the relationship. Or the family, you know, like the family dog is getting in. Yeah. You know, taking longer you know, to get out. The family off. dog's a little sick and we've got to kind of just take him over. Like, it's just, it it's is, so it is sad. sad. Yeah. 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 And his best days, they are behind him. But it, I still stand by the fact that when N'Golo Kante is fully fit, he is still one of the best players on the pitch. No matter how old he is, no matter how injury prone he is, he gives you 100%. And that's what makes him the player that he is, right? That's why everyone says N'Golo Kante is one of the best players um, oh. in the world doing what he does. But there is a time where you call it quits. And if this was me last season, I would have said, take another chance at him, take another season. And we are in that season. He's on his yeah. final legs and it's time to let go it'll be a shame letting him go for free but again we're not really going to get much money for um for him especially as he's now really pretty injury prone he is he is and um like you say when he does play he is still i think one of the best players in the world in this position but the problem is is that he plays one he misses three he plays one he misses three you know it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult one to plan for. The other player I wanted to speak about was Jorginho. Apparently, he's you know holding Chelsea to ransom over this new contract. He wants a he wants a significant pay rise, given his age and the type of profile of player he is, and the way the Potter's moving forward with his system. Could we be about to see the breakup of that midfield partnership entirely now? Do you know, I feel like significant pay rise is kind of a a bit of a stretch, right? Because from what I've seen, he's on one hundred and twenty k a week. 
and he wants 150k. It's not like Antonio Rudiger, who was on about less than 100k and wanted 400k at one point. You know, I feel right. like it's it's very reasonable for Chelsea to kind of say, okay, only 30k more, let's give it to him. Because at the end of the day, I look at this Chelsea team and think we can't really function that well without Jorginho in that midfield. I don't know what it is about him, but we can't function well until we can find a like-for-like replacement or kind of just switch the entire system completely to not go through Jorginho. We need to think smartly here. We need to kind of say, okay, we give Jorginho his contract, especially if he's only asking um for 30,000 more pounds, you know? Don't get me wrong, that is still a lot of money to someone like me. Cost yeah. of living crisis, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still that's a lot swimming, of money. That swimming pool isn't going to heat itself, is it? <laughs> exactly. I could do a lot with 30K in my house. I'm telling you that for free. But in, in, football, in the football world, it's chicken change, ain't it? 30K give him what he wants and let's just carry on with Jorginho until we find a like-for-like kind of replacement or until we're ready to switch the entire regime away from Jorginho. So a year is not enough to switch the regime. So let's just give him what he wants. I'm one of the fans who are for Jorginho, even though there's like a Chelsea kind of civil war going on online as to whether Jorginho should get his new contract or not. But I think it will be the smart decision for Todd Bowley. And just finally, before uh, we move into, I want to talk about Ballon d'Or uh, with, with, with Andy and Lee as well. And yourself, of course, Anita. I uh, want to get your opinions on men's and women's Ballon d'Or. We'll get on to that in a second. Finally, Man United uh, this weekend. Uh, one to fear or one to relish? Oh, we'll be all right. <laughs> we'll be just fine. Ain't that right, Andy? We will absolutely <laughs> be just fine. Um, I think there's a momentum with this team, especially if Mason Mount plays or Bamiyang plays and um, the usuals play. We get, um, I think Conor Gallagher has gone off injured, so we'll probably have Jorginho and Mateo Kovacic in that pivot as well. So I think we'll be just fine. Obviously, United, they've come off of a really good game. They'll probably come in on a high. Um, I think we'll be fine. And even though I say that, it'll probably still be a 1-1 or a 0-0, as it has been in the past when they come to Stamford Bridge. So again, not really high hopes, but I don't think Chelsea would lose that game. Okay. Uh, Thanks, Anita, for that Uh, whistle-stop tour of everything that's going on at Chelsea. Fantastic. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Ballon d'Or. Um, it seems maybe five, five, ten years ago, this was was a bigger deal. Obviously, um, you know, Ronaldo and Messi were winning it every year. Uh, Lee, I want to bring you in here uh, first of all as a, a an impartial observer of all things Ballon d'Or, because with all due respect, we haven't had a Newcastle player on the podium uh, in the Ballon d'Or in a while, if ever. Not um, yet. Not, not yet. yet. Soon. Not yet. on for next year. Yeah. <laughs> we've had we've had players who've played for Newcastle who won the Ballon d'Or, though, obviously. Yeah, of course, yeah, but was he playing with... There's Kevin Keegan, obviously, he was playing with Hamburg at the time. Is that right? Yes, yeah, that's what I mean. But you have played for yeah. Newcastle. Michael Owen is another. And Michael Owen is another. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see how many... Uh, the, the Ballon d'Or... Well, Michael's Ballon d'Or days were behind him when he went to Newcastle, to be fair. That's right, yeah. They certainly were. Yeah. Um, Can't disagree. Ballon d'Or, I think he could it then. <laughs> well, I think, to be fair, I think he would agree with, with all of this as well himself, so... Uh, yeah. But look, he, st- he did get two goals against Sunderland and, and a 2 0 win. So we're all Better about the Ballon d'Or, that's it, really. Statue. <laughs> Lee, I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, um, Karen Benzema, you know, uh, I think he's 34, 35 years old now, uh, lived in the shadow of Cristiano Ronaldo for so long and Gareth Bale uh, at Real Madrid and never really had the international career, probably that he feels he deserved. 
um, no World Cup, of course. Uh, is this, do you think, uh, Benzema winning the Ballon d'Or, do you think, you know, it's sort of well-deserved for a career's work? Has he finally hit, hit the pinnacle of the game, in your opinion? Well-deserved awards? Yeah, I think I think what one thing Benzema's guys is just got the uh, the respect of his his, his fellow professionals. It's, it seems to be there, you know. Um, I watched the Arsenal documentary, you know, with with, with great interest, the all or nothing, and uh, I think they were using him. The striker coach was using him as the example, um, and I think it was Lacazette. He said, you know, he is the best, and I, I just think he's got that respect about him. Um, yeah, for me, probably worthy winner on this occasion. Um, again, as a Newcastle man, Ballon d'Or is not really on our topic list normally, but yeah, I, I think he, he deserves it. And it's just nice. Um, it's nice that we're sort of coming to the end of all the Ronaldo Messi uh, debate. You know, it's um, it has been a bit boring from a you know bystander's point of view. So. Yeah. yeah. We certainly are. Um, Andy, I wanted to, br- to, to bring you mm-hmm. in here. I think the last time that neither Messi nor Ronaldo finished in the top three in the Ballon d'Or voting, I think, was 2006, uh, which is a significant amount of time ago. Um, mm. Cristiano Ronaldo appears at number 20 in the shortlist this year, and Lionel Messi doesn't appear in the shortlist at all. I think it was a shortlist of 30 players altogether. Um, that said, I think Messi probably deserves a place on the list this year. I thought he was he was pretty good at times for, for Paris Saint-Germain last year. and, and um, you know, I think maybe there's a little bit of anti-PSG bias going on there. Never mind. <laughs> what do you think about the the end of these uh, Messi Ronaldo days? I, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see either of two of them on the podium at the at the at the Ballon d'Or again, unless Portugal or Argentina win the World Cup. No. Yeah, and and, and unless, for example, you, you know, PSG could win the Champions League, and Messi, you know, who's been playing very well for them this season, you know, could could still be have that starring role. I think you can safely say that we're not going to see Ronaldo. Um, um, winning his what would be his what six Ballon d'Ors got five I think um, and we're not going to see that because for one thing even if Portugal do do well at the World Cup then Ronaldo what people forget at the moment is that Ronaldo isn't guaranteed a place in their starting lineup. he's been used relatively sparingly for his national team so I think it is the end it's only natural isn't it Ronaldo's 38 next birthday you, you know um, so it's not it, it is just a pass it, what's been remarkable is their dominance um, and obviously only now Benzema interrupting that and previously uh, Modric, wasn't it, I think, um, was the, the other last non-Ronaldo Messi winner of the Ballon d'Or. What I find fascinating about it, I, I, you know what I thought was the really interesting part of it? I mean, okay, so it's coming to an end, Messi-Ronaldo, so who takes over? So it's so it's Benzema, you know, and then I would have thought if if we throw it ahead, let's just forget the World Cup for a minute, throw ahead club football from this season – more than likely, it's going to be someone who's had a great domestic club season and a great Champions League season. The Champions League clearly plays a huge part in Ballon d'Or voting. It's an eye-catcher for them. Modric won it when he was instrumental in one of Real Madrid's um, um, Champions League wins and Croatia's run, obviously. And obviously, Benzema, as well as being outstanding in La Liga, was absolutely superb in the Champions League. Anita will remember um, his performances against Chelsea all too painfully, I'm sure, those two fantastic headed goals. So the Champions League plays a big part. So now you're thinking probably next season, you're already thinking the likes of Erling Haaland, aren't you? You know, you're thinking, uh, uh, and then you're, you're thinking maybe, I don't know, but you're thinking attacking players. What I found fascinating was Thibaut Courtois' comments. You know, basically, the, 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 he probably did as much as anyone to get Real Madrid the Champions League, you know, and came, I don't know, what was it, ninth or something like that? So when 
when our defensive he was seven, well, which isn't bad for a goalkeeper. I'll be honest. Well, ex- well, example. But what, what? Why? Why? Why not bad for a goalkeeper? So, so in other words, do we? And some of our number do actually have a have a say in the Ballon d'Or. Not, not. They're not really footballers, goalkeepers, though. I wouldn't have them on the list at all. Are, are defenders really footballers? Yeah, I'd have the defenders on there, but you know, goalies was, is a was, different. When thing. was the last defender to win the Ballon d'Or? Was it Cannavaro? Probably the year that Messi and Ronaldo didn't finish on the podium. It probably was. It, it probably was. And that's the thing. I just think it's a great discussion to have around it. You know, we have it because obviously we have our own our own, our own, own awards in terms of like um, our Football of the Year awards and, and and Players Play of the Year awards. When do defenders... I mean, Virgil van Dijk, I think, has been recognised. Diaz. But and Diaz was Diaz was our um, after we had uh, uh, Football of the Year, which well, that was the first defender, I think, since Steve Nichol in 1989, and he and he was like half old, you know, he was half modern wing back. But you know, what, I can see the point that we're only going to ever vote really in Ballon d'Or way. It's going to be a Messi, a Ronaldo, a Benzema. I suppose Modric was was maybe a little bit of an anomaly to that, but um, but. It'll be fascinating to see sort of who who now sort of um, uh, becomes because there's so many good young players around now. I mean, who, who, what was the pecking order? So it was Sadio Mane second. Yeah, Mane yeah. was second. Mane so was second. You know, Mane second. Like, De Bruyne third. And De Bruyne, and Lewandowski fourth. Yeah, which and, and yeah, you you could argue that Lewandowski was it considering his record last season, but was also incredibly unlucky. But. Um, but yeah, it is the end of an era. I don't think we'll see Ronaldo or Messi again. Certainly not Ronaldo, but um, but I wouldn't put it past Messi to actually just uh, pop one more under his belt, especially as Argentina have got a great chance in Qatar next month. Quickly, uh, from you, Lee, just before we finish, uh, Ballon d'Or. So obviously the last 15 years has been dominated by Messi and Ronaldo. Which players around the world or even within the Premier League do you see um, you know, sort of hitting consistent Ballon d'Or numbers over the next decade? Yeah, we've already touched on it there. Haaland, I think, is, is going to be up there. But I don't know, Mbappe, he's, he's probably yeah. the, the, probably the dream, Newcastle fans' dream signing. Um, this this takeover, but I, I don't know if it's going to happen because of the, the wage the wage structure, the way it is at the moment. But he he would be one for me that I think is he's got the capabilities, especially if he goes to Real Madrid. There's great things there. Who knows if where he's going to end up next. Can PSG finally um, push on and win a Champions League? We'll have to, to wait and see. But yeah, definitely Mbappe and Haaland for me. Do you know what? Out of this entire conversation, the biggest revelation for me was the last time Messi and Ronaldo didn't finish in top three, I was 12 years old. So that's a revelation <laughs> right there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, no, honestly, it's, it's actually a big like revelation for me. Like my mind literally went. But well, anyway, I digress. We've been here for an hour again. What we thought would be a short little discussion has turned into a long one, and we know we're treating you guys. We're treating you guys, the listeners, to very good content here. Lee came in with the Newcastle facts. Andy came in with the Man United facts. And you had me and Peter here giving you the best hosting you've heard all week. So make sure make sure you are subscribed to us. Make sure that you follow us all on socials and let us know if you disagree with any of our comments. And make sure you give each and every one of us a follow. But for now, till next week, it's goodbye. See you all later. Bye.